morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the November 18, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we'll hear from a qualified health insurance broker, Didier Mojais, to talk about the choices available during the enrollment period that just began. Then, director of the film Race to Nowhere, Vicky Abelis, will join Uni High Assistant Principal Michael Giordino to look at the root causes of the culture of overachievement five years after that film's release. Why do we know it's a crisis? Well, um, check out the difficulties uh, at the, the UC system has in meeting the demand for good therapists. We'll be right back after a short station break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Didier Mojais, certified financial planner and health insurance broker. He is the president of Executive Capital Insurance Services in San Diego. He's been in the business for 28 years, so it's good to have him on with us today. He received his Bachelor of Arts in Business Marketing at Centre Belge University, both on the Cyprus and his native Beirut, Lebanon's campuses, and received his, some financial certifications at the College of Financial Planning in Denver and the American College in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Here to unravel the Gordian knot of the arcane domain of health insurance is Didier Mojais, coming today from where he practices, as I said, in San Diego. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Didier Mojais. Thank you, Claudia. How are you? I'm, thank you, very fine. Well, you've, you, like uh, everybody else, have survived the first year of adjusting to the rollout of the Affordable Care Act, and now we clunkily fast forward to the current enrollment period for health care a really fine time to have you with us today. So many technical and essential questions and uh, so little time. How is your clientele going to determine whether they are eligible for Affordable Care Act subsidies, uh, sort of the, your quick formula you offer? Yeah, it's all based on income. It's based on your modified adjusted gross income. So um, if you're a single person and you fall roughly between 16000 to 46000 then you will qualify for subsidized money. So uh, it, it depends. I mean, the more people you have in your household, the bigger that subsidy is going to be. So, um, so that's one thing you need to look at. You need to look at your tax return um, line 37 of your 1040, and that's going to be your adjusted gross income. So pretty much it's going to give you an idea whether you qualify or not. And that's that's how we determine, and we need to know that before we are we make the next move. And uh, let's then talk about, as you say, not all companies are participating in the exchange that is California covered for those listening from California. Um, so, how does one sort out which company? Well, there are several companies participating, and there are some that are not. Like for example, you know, some of the companies participating is Anthem Blue Cross, uh, Blue Shield of California, Kaiser. Sharp, and so on and so forth. And some are not participating, like Cigna is not participating, um, and, and you know, a few other carriers are not. So um, the plans in the exchange, basically you would want to go on the exchange if you qualify for subsidized money, uh, because this is free money that you're given to lower your cost. Um, if you believe that your income is above a certain level, then you can go on the exchange, but you won't get any subsidies, or you can go off the exchange, uh, and I mean, pretty much the plans are pretty much the same. There is no really main difference, so the, and and the cost is pretty much the same. You know, you're going to have basically subtle variations between options, and uh, some companies are giving you, uh, you know, a little bit of a higher deductible, lower deductible, or whatever. But um, there are four levels available right now on okay. the exchange that are very important for everybody to know. You've got the bronze level, which is the highest deductible, which is a five thousand. Then you've got the silver, is a $2,000 deductible, and then you've got both the gold and the platinum, which are no deductible plans. So four levels, little variations between each level, but pretty much you have to stick to those four levels. Okay, but you said they're pretty much the same, but um, the the breaking down our um, what the actual costs are going to be over the year, then um, that we need to understand uh, the, well, the differences in... Uh, 
Well, what what were exposed with the deductible, and let's break it down mm-hmm. all the way. Um, so sure. that there's a deductible expensive. A lot of people thought, well, they can live with that, but then uh, there's your your month to month may uh, it may not bring it down enough, low enough that high deductible with what may happen. Well, the the thing is this: if you get subsidized money, uh, you know, like I said, um, you, the monthly cost that you're paying could be pretty much. I mean, I've got clients paying fifteen dollars a month for their health plan. So um, the lower your income is, and the older you are, the you know the you know the least expensive that plan is going to be. So uh, the things that have changed, with, you know, with healthcare reform is that after you reach that deductible, you have to pay a percentage of the bill, but uh, that percentage, I mean, the worst-case scenario for a single person is 6350 So if you go to the hospital and your bill is a million dollars, it's going to cost you $6,350. Uh, um, in the past, uh, you know, this was not included in the plan. You could have plans with a million-dollar out-of-pocket limit. So you had people that had cancer and easily exceeded these amounts. So now it's more uh, easier to understand and um, like, for example, the bronze plan has a $5,000 okay. deductible. So you have to pay for everything until you reach that $5,000. Um, the, the silver is $2,000. And so it depends on your tolerance, on your risk tolerance level. Then you choose a plan tailored to whatever you feel like, uh, you know, to, tailored to your risk uh, you know, level. Okay. Well, but there's a difference in terms of your payment. There's the co-insurance and there's the co-payments. Right. Can you break that down so we know? Because all getting all of these, they're all bananas and apples, and uh, without our knowing what our healthcare needs are going to be for the uh, succeeding year. So help us understand right. that, so we know we can put some kind of value on that monthly payment versus the deductible kinds of expenses. Back to okay. The, the bronze plan has a $5,000 deductible. Right, right. After you reach that $5,000 deductible, you have to pay 30% of the bill up to a maximum out-of-pocket of 6350 So that includes that deductible. So the silver plan has a $2,000 deductible, and then you pay 20% of the bill up to 6350 So the out-of-pocket is the same. Uh, the gold plan, you have no deductible to pay. You just pay 20% of the bill up to your maximum out-of-pocket of 6350 As you could tell, the first three plans have the same out-of-pocket max. So this is your stop loss. This is how much, uh, what's the worst-case scenario for you is that 6350 The only difference is that the platinum plan, which is the most expensive, has you, you pay 10% off the bat. There is no deductible. So you pay 10% with a maximum out-of-pocket of 4000 That's really the main difference between the platinum uh, and 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 the other three levels. So your out of pocket is different. It's is up to four thousand dollar limit. So once you reach that, and it's always per calendar year, which is from January first to December thirty first. Once this is reached, you never have to reach it again. So so you can go to the hospital in January and have your bill being you know like I said a hundred thousand dollars. It's going to cost you sixty three fifty. N- next month you go again and your bill is two hundred thousand. You don't pay anything because you've already reached this out of pocket for the year, the sixty three fifty. So the coinsurance is the reaching the deductible, and the the copayment is the the percentage that we're paying uh, with the um, at the point of service. Is, the is deductible is the amount of money that you have to reach first right, right. before most benefits are covered. I, did, yeah, like for tra- example, yes, I'm just trying I, to figure out the the distinction between coinsurance and copayment because that comes up in discussions about trying to pencil out what plan works better. Coinsurance is the amount of per, is the percentage amount that you have to pay after you've reached your deductible. Okay, that's that's what I was trying the to figure co-payment, out. The copayment, the copayment is a flat amount. Let's say you pay a twenty dollar copay for an office visit. That's your copay. So you pay twenty dollar copay, and then you walk out of there, or thirty dollars or forty dollars. Again, depending on the plan. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest today is Didier Mojais, certified financial planner and health insurance broker, with some very helpful guidance about selecting health plans during the enrollment period that is now here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web around the world at, uh, let's just say, doctor's offices at KUCI.org. So, uh, you're making this sound a little too easy now. There's still more fine print about trying to determine now when uh, the six, the deductible. Does that include? What does that include in this uh, at this moment in time? Because it it didn't it 
there's some adjustments in what it included in terms of all the health expenses. Can you itemize, or let's say list, I shouldn't say itemize, it's a different term. Um, list what does go toward that deductible. It depends on the level that you choose. Like, for example, on the bronze level, which is the highest uh, you know, deductible plan, uh, then pretty much let's say you go and get an X-ray, and the X-ray is $100 you have to pay for this X-ray. Um, then that goes towards your deductible. So if, you, if your X-ray is $200 and then you have a $5,000 deductible, then that goes towards it, then your deductible gets reduced by 200 then it's 4800 So pretty much everything goes towards that deductible. Um, and, of course, the rates are negotiated. So let's say if your X-ray is 200 the insurance company is negotiated down to 150 and you end up paying 150 out of pocket. So all that goes towards your deductible. Um, Whereas the gold and the platinum plan, which have no deductible, you're going to pay a flat amount for the office visit or a flat amount for the X-ray. Uh, let's say thirty bucks or forty bucks or fifty bucks, depending on the plan. Um, so, again, as I said before, it depends what your risk tolerance level. If you want to pay the least amount of money, then you go with the bronze plan. But of course, you're going to have a higher deductible that you have to reach. Um, if you'd like, if you like options where you want to go, hey, I want to go to unlimited office visits and pay. $20 for the office visit and not have to reach a deductible, then you have to go with a platinum plan, which is more expensive. Uh, my opinion has always been that if you're healthy, you don't have any health issues pretty much, and you know, you're young, uh, in my opinion, there is no need to go with a low deductible. Just go with a higher deductible because you're out of pocket limits on most of these plans. In the event something major happens to you, it's just 63.50. So save that money on a monthly basis rather than paying, uh, you know, 50% more or 100 percent more for a no deductible plan save that, that this extra amount and and you you know just use it for other things okay so um you were talking about x-rays as an example so this includes all medications in, but not over the counter do i understand that correct uh you, for, you mean that towards goes the towards the deductible yes uh, yes uh, everything would go towards your deductible on the bronze plan so okay. including your medications as well and and the others and the others, depending on which one, whether you want the uh, platinum or whether you want the gold, uh, you know, they have a flat amount for, for example, the platinum has a flat amount for $15 per prescription. The gold is $50 uh, for preferred brand medication. So, it, again, it really depends. Ah. Um, the things is, um, so many things have changed with healthcare reform. Uh, so many good things have happened. And, of course, you've got the bad things as well. But um, the plans are much easier to understand than they were in the past. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like before, you could have plans that don't cover brand name prescription, that only covers generic. You have plans that have a stop loss of only a million or two million. I mean, so, it, it, so many good things have happened. And the plans, you, like I said, you've got mainly four levels, and they're pretty easy to understand. And that's my job when I talk to my clients. I explain to them, like, okay, what's your risk tolerance level, what you're trying to accomplish. And then I, I put them in a plan based on their needs. So... The Affordable Care Act, the the benefit here of, of sorts is then it's made it standardized coverage for one. Exactly. So that's exactly. that's a huge benefit, and I guess that sort of doesn't get brought up in the discussion. And then the other, would you argue that the affordable? This is the policy side. I'm talking to a guy in the private sector about policy here, but I I don't mind. It's a, it's the way commuter radio works here. Is that the um, also the Affordable Care Act? Would you say there's a difference in transparency uh, in the, in, I mean, standardizing always makes things more transparent, but would you argue that there's a little bit more transparent um, sort of feature to the these all these tables? Absolutely. It, uh, it keeps everybody more honest, in my opinion, in certain things. In the amount of coverage, the type of coverage, you no longer have tweaks that most people don't understand. So it's much easier to understand. Uh, there are certain levels, for example, you have to have your, uh, your annual physical exams covered at 100%, no matter what level you go with. So um, like uh, things like uh, the annual physical, the well baby cares, all these are covered at 100%, even if you go with the highest deductible plan. There are other things that are good about, uh, you know, the affordable care, which is, um, you know, if you have pre-existing conditions or health issues, you could no longer be turned down right. because of that. Right. That, that so, one got so, out. That word. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. 
Yeah, so, so that's really important. Um, and then, of course, if you're under a certain income level, you qualify for subsidized money. And you're, if you're under below another income level, you can go on Medi-Cal. So, um, so there are more options now. That we're not, and of, but, of course, like I said before, you've got the bad stuff to it as well. Um, The bad stuff is nobody takes responsibility anymore. Like, for example, uh, the insurance companies blame Covered California. Covered California blames the insurance company. So there's always blames to go around. So any time there is an issue with anything, uh, you call Covered California, no, no, we didn't do that. That's the insurance company. You call the insurance company, no, 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 that's not our fault. It's uh, it's Covered California's fault. So um, that's one thing. Um, And then they have issues with the system. They've had several issues with the system where people, would be on a health plan that uh, then automatically they bump them into Medi-Cal. People don't want to go on Medi-Cal. And then the network of doctors are definitely significantly smaller than before. Um, So if you're on a group plan or you have a plan that is called Grandfather, which is an individual health plan that you have before March 2010, then you have the broader network, the bigger network. So pretty much all doctors accept it. But now it's more uh, not too many doctors take it. Um, uh, you know, I would say it shrunk. I mean, the whole network shrunk by about forty or fifty percent, which is big in some places. In in Cal, are this a California average or is this a a, a national? This is here in California, but I'm sure the national average is the same uh, because the, many doctors are electing uh, not to accept. Uh, that and you know not to go that route and not to accept it so and same with hospitals some hospitals like for example here in san diego you've got uh, uh, scripps hospital is with blue shield but is not with anthem blue cross the anthem blue cross has sharp and ucsd so um it you know like i said the network, so it's very important for you listeners to know that if they want to uh, go talk to a doctor and make sure that that doctor is a PPO provider or that hospital is a PPO provider um, to make sure they ask them, that, hey, are you PPO provider with the ABC. Covered California plan, right. with the new plans, not under the group plans? Okay. And that, that's a question I was going to bring up. But uh, in terms of the, um, what you're bringing up right now, the network, um, the drop-off of, of uh, networks that the doctors are participating in, DDA, would you attribute, though, that to some of the uncertainty? And then once there becomes more certainty in this insurance framework, do you think more doctors will begin, will move back into more networks? It's possible, but also on the on the other hand, I think their compensation, in my opinion, is not as high as what it is on on group plan. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure more and more doctors will end up joining. Um, but, uh, you know, I've seen, I mean, many of my friends that are doctors uh, have elected not to, basically not to participate. So um, so they'd rather see patients that are under their group plans or the older, uh, you know, uh, I mean, network. So, but I'm sure that more and more would participate that things would iron itself out down the road. Okay, so you brought up an important point then, and the second part of that uh, answer to the question there was that um, there's ways we can find out who's covered by whom. And you were saying that the best way to determine coverage, uh, you go to your provider, you were saying, and you ask them, are you in this network? You ask the the service provider. That's where you determine whether, um, which plan, I'm not plan, that's the, uh, the level, which company to go with. It, it, exactly. And it, the question has to be specific because I've had many people say, well, my doctor said that they are PPO provider, let's say with Anthem. But they're not. But, yeah, it's very important. Yeah, because maybe they're thinking it's the Anthem group plans. But uh, it's very important to specify, to say I'm on an uh, individual health plan or a family health plan uh, or I'm on a covered California health plan. Are you, uh, I mean, do you guys participate in, 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 uh, in these plans? So, um, and so it's important to ask that specific network to say I'm on an individual plan uh, or I'm on a covered California plan. Excellent. So, uh, and, Excellent. Then, and then you'd be more specific. And uh, is there a better person to ask in those practices, the, the question? Because I think some people, may have, they have a general idea. Or do we, do we look for a particular title? I mean, because not everybody, I mean, they're, they're all juggling different duties and they're all kind of harried by this changing climate. So um, how do we know we're getting the straight stuff from those providers' offices? With whom do usually we- the person that answers the, uh, you know, uh, I mean, usually the person that does the billing at, at this office usually knows uh, which network and which, uh, you know, usually the, these are the people that you want to talk to. But, 
um, you know, some, I mean, now, as we've had almost a year behind us with that, if you ask the, the front people, they usually have an idea and they would guide you the right way. They'll tell you, go here and, um, you know, or, you know, we'll have you wait and then, you know, we'll give you the answer. But, uh, um, and I know from experience in, um, in the neighborhood where I live, there's a listserv and there is such fertile discussion and such need for clarifying what kinds of coverage. And uh, lots of them are concerned about, uh, and this we hadn't talked about in preparing for the interview, but this this you might be able to address too, is how best to determine the, whether the network follows those households' child to college in state, out of state. How, do you, what do you tell your clients right. about managing that? Well, yeah, that's 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 uh, that's a good question. The the thing that it's it's really important to 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 understand that I mean, there are mainly uh, three different networks. You've got the HMO, which is something like Kaiser. It's health maintenance organization. So you've got HMO, which are within your area usually, and then you've got a PPO, which is preferred provider organization, which means you can go to pretty much. Any doctor, whether you're in San Diego or San Francisco or even out of state, and then you've got an EPO, which is like an offshoot of a PPO. It's called Exclusive Provider Organization. The uh, the the EPO is like a PPO, but the difference is you have to stay within this area, within this particular area. So if you um, go, for example, to Nevada or Arizona or whatever it is, you won't be able to see doctors outside of that EPO network unless it's a life-threatening emergency. So um, I always suggest to go with PPO whenever you can. Uh, you go with a PPO. Uh, like, for example, if you go with a PPO plan with Blue Shield and, uh, or Cigna or whatever, then if you go out of network, you can see doctors out of, uh, I mean, out of network. I mean, like out of state, not out of network, but out of state. Let's say you go to Arizona or Nevada or all of these other states, then you'll be able to go on these PPO providers, and it would follow. It would go with you no matter where you go. So those for of you who just joined us, we are drawing down, but we still got a little bit more time with my guest, Didier Mojais, certified financial planner and health insurance broker during this uh, this moment here. Let's talk of, of the, uh, the health insurance enrollment. So what are we to be mindful of in terms of deadlines for individual group and all, all of these um, uh, plans that we're talking about? And the um, covered California and the the private sector, like what somebody would go to you about, what are the deadlines? It's very important. It's very important to understand that right now there is an open enrollment, which is it goes from November fifteenth to February fifteenth. So if you apply before December fifteenth, you'll be able to get a January first effective date. So open enrollment is during that three months. Open enrollment is when you can enroll. Um, if you do not enroll during that time then you cannot enroll mid-year. So, so, for example, let's say you discover that you have back issues or you need surgery in March or April or whatever, you won't be able to, to join at that time. It, it'd be too late for you to join, and then the cost, I mean, you'll have to bear the cost. Um, the other thing is um, uh, outside of open enrollment, which is, like I said, from November 15th to February 15th, there are always special enrollment periods. Like, for example, if you were working at a job, and then you lose your health coverage, or um, if you got married. So there are special enrollment period that, you, that, that you're allowed to join during that time, and you don't have to wait till the annual open enrollment period. So, so it's important to join during that time, um, and then uh, to make sure that you have health coverage and not wait until the, you know, the, it has ended. And so we, it's important to do that. We do need, for people that want to make sure they've got coverage January one twenty fifteen. They've got to have it. The enrollment deadlines by is it not the the middle of December? It's twelve fifteen. Correct. Exactly. So that's exactly. important. If they wait, if they do it, let's say on twelve sixteen, then it'd be February first. So the back has to be uh, traumatized sometime after yeah. February. If you <laughs> you miss the deadline, <laughs> you got so it. it's not. Oh yeah. gosh, I, all all the back sufferers are not laughing with you. I'm sure. So, um, well, that's, I, I'm, I'm one of them. Um, <laughs> I'm a tax sufferer myself. You don't sound so. like it at all, or something really, <laughs> something's working. Well, I'm sure in the back of people's minds is, or it might be right in the front, is the the potential for additional change as we hear, not murmurings, we're hearing direct uh, debate uh, about uh, the congressional uh, leadership, the GOP leadership in Congress talking about 
changing the Affordable Care Act, and then there is the Supreme Court case pending about the uh, the language about uh, eligibility um, in uh, the states. So what do you recommend for people that are a uh, little jittery about the uh, the likelihood of changing uh, the terms for the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, that's, again, my opinion, is, is I, I, I think the... 95% of it is going to stay the way it is, and it's not going to be changed. I mean, it's not going to be. But you're going to have a few differences. Like, for example, they've been talking about adding a, another level instead. You know, you know, we have bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. They're, at, they're thinking of adding like a copper level, which is a much higher deductible and higher out-of-pocket limits. They've been talking about that. They've been maybe talking about lowering those subsidies, uh, the uh, amount. So if you get X amount of money, you might be, you know, getting less than that. But... Um, I mean, changes are going to happen, but I think the the base of it is going to probably stay pretty much the same. I don't think you can go back on that or, you know, or revert it or do anything with that. Well, that'll be most, most interesting um, to watch that. And the, I guess some like the medical devices might uh, that might change. And that's well, I, I don't even know what percentage it might uh, affect in terms of uh, people's coverage. But it may, um, it's not necessarily enough that would change somebody's decision about plans at this point. Yeah, exactly. But, but I, I don't think so. Exactly. Well, I, exactly. how can people who have more questions about this, since I'm sure they're catching on that you've got, you've made it, uh, you've distilled this so well for us to understand, how can people get a hold of you for more questions to be answered? They can reach me at uh, a toll-free number, which is 800-889-1910 and they press 2, which is I'm at extension 2, and then I'd be more than happy to answer any questions they may have. Okay. Well, that's great. And you've got, I think you have a website. You can give that to DDA. Yeah, the website is uh, executivecapital.com. So it's www.executivecapital, with a T-A-L, dot com. Right. So, so good. Well, thank you, DDA, for your time sure. in explaining how we can chart the waters of such a complicated, changeable, consequential system that healthcare insurance is. That was DDA Mojais. Certified financial planner and health insurance broker, president of Executive Capital. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Claudia. Okay. I appreciate it. We'll be right back after uh, this break, and I'm going to queue up uh, Vicki Abellis, who will join us with the University High School Assistant Principal Mike Giorgino to talk about possibly nipping some of this pathology in the bud that I was talking about, why so many psychologists are needed at UC System showing up in those long lines. Well, we'll hopefully address that. Stay tuned. Be right back. Thanks for staying with us, folks. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. A couple of months ago, I heard a compelling account of how the UC system is grappling with the uphill demand for psychological therapists. All the markers that were mentioned, the pathologies that were there identified, were those very markers that seem present over the years under our noses from kindergarten to, to the senior year in high school. My next guests are here with me to address this trend. They are film director, uh, co-director of, uh, well, film director, she's directing a lot more than the, the first one I was going to talk about, is Vicki Abellis and local high school assistant principal Mike Giorgino. Vicki Abellis is a mother, filmmaker, author, and need we say, passionate advocate for children. I don't, I'm going to let her tell us, Vicki, where did you complete your uh, undergrad and your law degrees? Yeah, so I went to undergrad at University of Miami and graduated back in 1983. Oh, you don't have to go two years, but Washington that's fine. Washington University for law school. Okay, very good. And then, um, so her first career was a Wall Street attorney. Then she took up filmmaking in 2007 when she co-directed Race to Nowhere, the film that's uh, been on required viewing list for some time. Many of you listening know all about that film. Additional in credits include associate producer on the Sundance favorite, uh, Misrepresentation, 
and associate producer on Plastic Man, which had its world premiere at the Mill Valley Film Festival this month. Vicki's currently working on a new film featuring innovative schools on the cutting edge of education reform. I hope to bring that up. I just heard some more of that on KQED this morning. She's also directing a film about the math crisis in America and the inspiring educators on a mission to solve it. Mike Giordino, my other guest in this half of the hour, is in his fourth year now as assistant principal at University High School. Prior to that, he taught social science four years at Uni High School, previously five years of social science at Brookhurst Junior High in Anaheim. He received his BA uh, in political science at UC San Diego. So uh, he, his family of four resides in beautiful nearby Costa Mesa. Vicki comes to us today from Lafayette, California in the Bay Area, and Mike right down Campus Road. Welcome to the program, Vicki and Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Vicki, before I go and scoop what you've got going in your forthcoming book featuring stories around the country uh, that have now changed after their Race to Nowhere screenings, Let's have you tell us, because you've not ever been on Ask a Leader before, let's have you tell us about the, the very origins of the film quickly and your, your motivations and your intentions. Yeah, so um, this film got started oh, about um, seven, eight years ago when my daughters were in middle school and my son was in fourth grade. And I started to see the pressures and the toll that was being taken on my kids in terms of their health. Um, uh, in our ever-busy culture and um, started to wonder whether other people across the country were experiencing uh, what I was seeing both in my home and in my school community. Um, as I started talking to people across the country, along with doing research and speaking with experts, um, I became aware of an epidemic of unhealthy, stressed, depressed, anxious um, young people trying to manage an extreme and felt there was an important story to tell. I felt it was important to give students uh, a voice to share these stories um, and ultimately to bring communities together to um, to discuss the issues that the film raises in the hopes of inspiring change. When the film was released five years ago, we had our premiere at Mill Valley Film Festival. The film has now gone on to screen in about um, over 7,000 locations in all 50 states and more than 40 countries. And I think um, the film really struck a cultural nerve and um, said what I think many um, were afraid to say on their own and um, has inspired changes across the country. And so I'm really encouraged, but we're talking about shifting a culture, and, um, and that takes time. And that cultural nerve is a very uh, complicated nest of of uh, where there's so many different f frames of reference of culture. We'll, we'll bring that up um, in a little bit later in our discussion. Well, sure. Mike Giorgino, you presented at University High School this film. You showed it one time, I guess, was it, or more than once? We showed it a couple times. We showed it first to parents, and then after the parents viewed it, there was the overall consensus that more people needed to see it. At that point, we showed it to our staff. We had a, a staff day where we showed it, discussed it, um, and then from that, we decided to show a version of it to students as well to spur a conversation on campus. And I, I'll give you a chance to think about this while we're um, interacting at the, uh, in the sort of the general questions here. At, Mike, at any time you want to ask producer Vicki Abelis about her, uh, her film, since you're a consumer of this film too, like I was in a different setting, feel free, Mike, to ask her okay. a, any question you. that you like. It's a great opportunity. So did you, Mike, find um, what kinds of, of uh, changes, adjustments occurred once that discussion started after viewings of Race to Nowhere? Well, we showed it, I believe, two and a half years ago, uh, basically as a response to what we saw as growing um, mental health concerns on campus, anxiety, depression, students just having too much on their plate. And really from showing that video, the, the lingering effect of it is that the, the concept or the ideal of, of promoting balance and having balanced lives has really become a driving force in what we're doing here. We've changed our bell schedule. We've added a homeroom class. And I don't know that a lot of people would make the direct link to the Race to Nowhere conversation, but I think clearly when you hear the conversations, um, there's a thread of, of the idea of making sure we have balanced, healthy students and that we're making personal connections to them and that we're letting them know that there's a lot of paths to success and a lot of support to be had out there and that they're not in this alone. And, and I think a lot of that mentality, which is really driving 
our school culture right now, what we're striving to get to is comes from that conversation started with Race to Nowhere because these weren't conversations we were having five years ago. Um, not that we didn't care, but it just wasn't out there. And the beauty of the film is uh, it strikes a lot of nerves with a lot of people. So there, you, you watch that film and it, there's things that resonate with everybody. And it's not the same ideas, but students see it and they, and they see things in their lives. Parents see it and they see things that they're dealing with and teachers and people on a school campus watch the film and find other things that, that relate to them. As we said, it was a kind of, uh, when we had students on talking with you about this about a, I don't know, it was about a, what, a half a year, year ago, mm-hmm. that sort of identifying the, I saw, what did I say, the elephant in the middle of the gym or something like that, mm-hmm. the assembly room. So, and, and Vicki, you should feel free too to, if you want to ask Mike uh, what it was, uh, the receiving end and the adjusting end uh, of seeing your film. So that, uh, you're, you're welcome anytime to, to bring that up. Well, Thank you. Absolutely. Did you have one right now? I was just going to say I so appreciate, Mike, your sharing um, the changes. I think you're absolutely right. This was a conversation that wasn't happening. And in many ways, this film kind of said the emperor has no clothes. Mm -hmm. And um, it's given a lot of communities permission to have conversations, to recognize that this isn't about um, placing issues impacting only one community or placing blame on any particular stakeholder group, but that really we have an unhealthy culture and our schools are a reflection of that unhealthy culture. Culture. Um, and I think in many ways um, what's needed is a movement because it's scary for one parent to take action on their own for fear that they will leave their child behind. And at the same time, I think schools struggle with that same issue. They don't want to go out on a limb and take a risk um, if other schools aren't there um, joining their efforts. So I think um, it's really brave that your school has taken these steps um, to um, reprioritize balance in our kids' lives. And, um, and I would say you're, you know, um, in good company with hundreds, if not thousands, of other schools that are taking steps um, in that direction as well. And one of our challenges and, and where I think a lot of our efforts will be focused going forward is on making sure that we are capturing these stories of change and then sharing them out with school communities across the country because your story this morning, Mike, is going to inspire other schools um, to create change as well. Right. Did you did you have a reaction to that, Mike, or we've got go on to the next question? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to say it's, you know, it's there's so many elements that the film speaks to, but you, you're right. I mean, it's hard to, to change a school culture or to change policies based on the culture you're trying to achieve because we're not, you know, we can do all we want about, um, you know, thinking about how we address homework and course offerings and um, schedules, but ultimately we're not, we don't live in a vacuum. I mean, these kids are trying to get into college too. So we have to also balance the, you know, we want students to still be competitive. We still want to have everybody be as successful as they want to be in their own definition of success. So, you know, it, it does need to be a cultural shift. You know, it's not just what's happening at schools, but what universities are doing and what universities are asking for and what parents are perceiving to be the path to success. So it's, it's important that a lot of different schools are, are taking steps to remedy a, a situation that everybody recognizes exists. I mean, there's not a conference you go to where people aren't talking about mental health issues in our, in our students. The question right. is, you know, can we all take a collective step to, to deal with it? Uh, Absolutely. For, yes. For those of you who've just joined us, you're tuned in to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, where my guests are Vicki Abelis, co-director of the film The Race to Nowhere, joined by University High Assistant Principal Michael Giorgino. And I wanted what brought me to this whole kind of panel this morning is it's an article that was filed by KQED, the California Report, about particular trends that were addressed uh, by UCLA's Elizabeth Gongai, executive director of the Counseling and Psychological Services there. And in the article about the difficulty that the UC system is having meeting the increased demand for therapists, I was just dumbfounded when she described what are the markers that were evident, I thought, uh, with us uh, from K through 12. And I'm going, going now to quote her verbatim. She says, Increasingly, we find that many of the students who make their way to our counseling centers are seasoned perfectionists who've driven themselves to unsustainable positions in which their lives lack any semblance of balance or self-compassion. These are students with eating disorders, crippling obsessive-compulsive disorders, cutting histories, addictions, 
and illicit stimulant abuse. Uh, end of quote. Your reaction to this appraisal, either one of you? I, I mean, it's just that what's happening at the high school level is trickling up. I mean, that's indicative of what we see. You know, I, I think I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago where someone had mentioned, you know, there's 2,800 universities in the, in the country, and everybody focuses on getting into 200 of them, whereas most students could get into the other 2,600. And because everybody's focused on this, this small target, this is the effect of that. Right. So, so I want to just say also I, I really appreciate that perspective, Mike, that um, from my perspective, I think it's great that there's been a big effort to improve student mental health services and um, access to mental health providers on college campuses, as well as reducing the stigma and other barriers right. to mental health treatment. Um, and at the same time, I think that one um, big area for improvement, and I think where we're going to be focusing a lot of our work, and it sounds like you're already doing this, Mike, is to really um, directly address the root causes of the stress. That's right? the one. That's it. And I, I really think that what that's going to look like is for every school community, and I think colleges can take this on as well, um, to measure student mental health issues, you know, whether that be anxiety, stress, depression rates, abusive medications, and so forth, all of the things that you just listed, and then also uh, survey students on the sources of stress, and then design multifaceted um, interventions that begin to address those stressors. And, and I think that, you know, time is a big one. Um, we can talk about college admissions. We can talk about all the external pressures. But at the end of the day, I think particularly K through 12 and especially in middle school and high school, it is the case that there are so many well-meaning adults in our kids' lives that are making demands on their time that exceed what is humanly possible and what is humanly possible for a body and mind that's still growing and developing. And so I think that we really do need to get to the root causes of these stress, and I don't think it's just college admissions, but I think it's unhealthy demands um, on the number of hours um, that students can put in. Um, I think in many cases we require middle and high school students as well as college students to put in more hours than most adults work. Um, and I think there's a lot to be done around reducing this idea that, you know, it's about coverage of content rather than depth of understanding in curriculum, um, looking at issues around scheduling, looking at the way that we are constantly assessing young people. Um, you know, somebody actually just shared with us that she had been tracking how many times her daughter, who's now in high school, had been assessed since the beginning of the year. Now, how many? we're only two months into the year. She had been assessed 200 times, right? Wow. And I would say that is a source of stress. If we as adults were assessed and measured each and every day and at multiple points in our day, I think that would create a tremendous amount of stress. So I, I think it is about, you know, measuring stress levels, anxiety levels, health in a community, and then getting at the sources of the stress and beginning to design interventions because well, we actually have a lot to, that is controllable. Well, I'm thinking your point's well taken, Vicki, about the, um, the pedagogical part of uh, in the setting, but I'm thinking we, when we're talking about root causes, the pressure at the household level is starting mighty early. Anecdotally, and I have to put this out there, some people will recognize what I'm talking about, is there was a request in my neighborhood listserv for a math tutor for her four-year-old daughter for one hour a week. Right. Yeah. No, so, so I hear so what it, you're saying. It's as far starting as the early. That parents put yeah. on their kids, and I absolutely think that we as parents need to reflect on the ways that we're pressuring our kids. And one thing that I often share with parents is that we need to um, make sure that we're not one more person um, seen as measuring our kids, right? <laughs> um, but I also think that. Um, it's really important to recognize that parents in many cases, um, all parents, I think, operate from a place of good intentions, but I think parents are responding to this hyper-competitive culture. It's so insidious. And just to share an expert on this, Wendy Gralnick, who's written a book, uh, Pressured Parents, Stressed Out Kids, and her thesis is essentially that um, rather than blaming parents and, uh, and helicopter parents, if you will, is that parents are doing what we're hardwired to do in a hyper-competitive situation. And so, yes, there's, there are things that can be done at home, but I actually think that we need to look at the way that so many of our schools have become 
become unhealthy cultures and begin as school communities to place the well-being um, of our children at the top of our list. If our kids aren't healthy, they can't be available to learn. So, Mike, grow. So, Mike, you've seen it all at, at, uh, as an administrator now uh, at the Utney High School, uh, and, so, and you have two daughters, so are they, they're not middle school yet. No, no, no. They're, they're kindergarten's the oldest. So you're, you're in a position, you're, ready, you're making decisions now about their, their goals and their activities and that kind of a thing. Is there anything that you are finding you are able to be proactive about at this point? I don't know if that's what comes to mind, but, I mean, certainly I could tell you I was shocked when my daughter had homework in kindergarten. Yeah. I don't know if that shocks other people, but it shocked the heck out of me because I'm thinking if she's got a packet of nine pages for a week in kindergarten, what's she going to have in first grade, assuming everything progresses? And if that's the case, what's she going to have in sixth grade? Um, You know, when we talk about over, you know, like Vicky was just saying about all the demands we put on kids, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's just the cultural problem we have. I mean, even as a school, our administrators, our counselors, even our teachers um, were a broken record at this point talking about balance, telling students not to get involved with, you know, that it's quality over quantity as far as the types of things you're involved with. Um, But still, no matter, you know, we we say that message over and over in a lot of different ways in a lot of different venues, um, and still you have parents and members of the community that are just convinced that, you know, to be competitive, yeah, maybe you're right about what you're saying, but I know my kid, the kid across the street is in five different clubs, so my kid needs to be in six. Um, so schools are, it's tough. You know, as a school, we know what students, well, we, 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 we know what we believe and what we see as far as what helps students and what they, the realities are of what colleges are asking for, but, um, you know, people have their own conclusions, and it's a, a cultural shift needs to happen. Those things happen over time. It's, and we're clearly in a cultural age where people are hyper-competitive. And, and it's almost like it, the, the messages fall on deaf ears. Obviously, everybody advocates for their children and wants them to be healthy. But of the moment, everybody thinks their kids could handle whatever they're doing at the moment. Right, so I think big picture, Mike, what you're saying, right, and I just want to add is that I think as parents, we need to resist the temptation to overschedule our kids. We need to encourage them not to overschedule themselves. Um, We have a campaign right now that is all about banning busyness, and it's not just at the home level, but I think that it, and it's very connected to research, so I would just encourage listeners to take a look on the website at the really important research about reclaiming time in our kids' lives. Um, But as far as overscheduling, I do want to just ask everybody to think about a typical high school student, um, just an average high school student with maybe one school-sponsored activity, whether that's a sport or debate team or drama. And I think it is the case that most of our kids are in school about 30 to 35 hours a week. If they've got one school-sponsored activity, it's the case that most of those activities have become professionalized. And so a sports team, a debate club might take another 15 hours on top of the 35 hours in school. And then if you factor in homework, and let's just say if a high school is um, just doing two hours a night, which I think is oftentimes not the case, you're talking about kids that are putting in 70-hour weeks, and that's not sustainable um, on any level. And it's crowding out the time for sleep, the time for family, the time to develop in all the other ways that we want young people to develop. So, again, I would resist the temptation to just put this on parents over scheduling because when I do the calculation of a typical high school student with just one school-sponsored activity, we're asking them to put in three shifts. Um, and I think that's where you see so many of the unhealthy outcomes because we're asking them to manage an extreme that most of us as adults are not expected to manage. Um, and even if we are, we oftentimes have a choice about whether we continue our work in the evening, and we're not giving our kids a choice to stay up until 1 or 2 in the morning doing homework, you know, and to have four or five hours of sleep. And I, I think that's truly why you're seeing this epidemic on college campuses. I mean, I think in many ways um, – kids in college actually have a little more time to spare, which is, which is backwards. Right, right, right. They're, right. In, they're in class less hours a week, far less hours than our high school students, and they have approximately the same workload. So I think that um, we really need to um, look at all of these issues through the lens of time, and we need to come together as communities and stop pointing fingers um, and worrying about college admissions because at the end of the day, I think colleges are looking for well-rounded healthy, interesting human beings um, 
not um, not young people who have spent their high school years checking off boxes. And Vicki, I want to walk back to what we were talking about, this cultural component. And there is a practitioner in the area who's led many uh, pro bono seminars. Um, he's a, a, a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Dan Tsuang, and he's talked about how he tries to introduce to all cultural frames of reference the idea of emotional and social competence and that how emotional competence is a way to get at a, a demographic that is driven, that's making this insidious uh, climate, creating this insidious climate of, of over-programming every single student, that the emotional competence gives uh, opens up where the stressors are starting to uh, uh, manifest and it allows for some conversation, a dialogue, some tapping into where the the student is beginning to be at risk from the middle school time on, since we're all really concerned about the root causes. So I, I, now, does emotional competence come into uh, the vocabulary that either one of you are applying? I guess that's our last question as we're going to wrap up the show on that. I mean, I would say absolutely, and I would just, knowing this is the last question, I would just encourage everybody um, who comes into contact with students to start asking students where the stressors are and what support they need in order to have a healthier, more balanced experience. Because I think if we as adults, parents and educators and healthcare professionals listen to the students, I actually think that um, the solutions aren't that complex. I just wanted to point out something um, based on what Vicky had said before, I know this is a final comment, but as far as the time commitments on kids and that it's more than what adults would expect to have, and I think that's true, and I think part of the, the challenge at the high school level, probably even with parents, is what are the expectation levels that we have? Everybody talks about having high expectations, and right. the moment you talk about changing things, then the conversation goes to, well, I don't want to lower expectations or dumb down, but I think where the conversation needs to go is what are the appropriate expectations, and I think that's what we don't address. You know, what are the, we may have set the bar too high in some places. Right, right. That's an excellent point. Not when you're changing high expectations, does that mean you're lowering them or you're, uh, you're, um, reframing them into appropriate. That's, that is the takeaway. I really appreciate that. And Vicki, you had one last thing to say, and I'll assure you that I'll put on the podcast summary how people can get a hold of the Race to Nowhere website, which is loaded with resources. But go ahead. Your last thing, Vicki? I would just encourage people to continue speaking about these issues, finding opportunities to bring communities together, and importantly, to include students in these conversations. I think the students, um, if we listen to them, have lots of ideas on what needs to change. And the great news is that there are hundreds of schools across the country working to address these issues. And in our forthcoming film, we're going to be featuring some schools that are even, you know, taking this a little bit further and transforming the experience of school and the way students are learning. Okay. And so we're, we're very encouraged by that. I think missing from this conversation has been a picture of what's possible when we put what we know about students and about learning um, at the center of our schools. And so we're really excited about this film to um, just grow the conversation that started with Race to Nowhere. Okay, thank you. Vicki Abeles, co-producer of the film Race to Nowhere. It's still being shown at various assemblies, uh, various venues all over the country. It can be uh, procured for... Um, showing it in your area and uh, joining her in this interview was assistant principal at University High School Mike Giorgino. Thank you both of you for being on the show. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. This is the close of Ask a Leader. Next week we'll have a special sit down with the dapper and wise emeritus professor of math, Dr. Howard Tucker. A sort of Thanksgiving preview there. Thanks for listening everybody. Talk to you next week.